0: Okay, so welcome back to another lecture in contract law. In today's lecture, we move away from consideration and promissory estoppel, which can be quite a complicated and difficult area of law for students to wrap their heads around, at least I've noted that in the past, to an area which I think is much more straightforward, which is the doctrine of intention to create legal relations. So let me just briefly Set the scene and give the context for this. And remember that we are still, although you might struggle to believe it, we're still discussing the basic rule of contract law around the formation of contracts. I introduced this basic rule way back in lecture two, and I said that there were several things, several conditions that needed to be satisfied in order for a legally binding contract to come into existence. There must be offer, must be acceptance, there must be consideration, and Now, the fourth condition, there must be intention to create legal relations. So what does that mean? Well, we're going to find out in the remainder of this particular lecture. We're going to introduce and explain the idea first, and then we're going to look at a really important case on intention to create legal relations, probably the major leading authority on the whole doctrine. So let me just start by stating what I take to be the rule about intention to create legal relations. In order for there to be a binding legal contract, the parties to that contract must intend for their promises to be legally binding. In some contexts, namely domestic and social contexts, there is a presumption against such an intention. In other contexts, notably commercial contexts, there is a presumption in favor of such an intention, but both of these presumptions can be rebutted. Now, there's a lot of ideas, important ideas, embedded into that formulation of the rule, so I want to go through some of them. First, let me just say that this intention rule is, to some extent, an odd modern quirk of contract law. And I mean modern in the sense that it's only really become a fixture in contract law for the past 100 or so years. The classic idea or model of a contract, and the one that a lot of people will recite to you if they know anything about contract law at all, is that in order for there to be a binding legal contract, there must be offer, acceptance, and consideration. So it's typically just those three things that get cited. But that's actually an error, because one of the modern developments in contract law is that you also have to have intention to create legal relations. So even though this is actually viewed as a modern idea, it's something that has been implicit in case law for quite some time, dating back to the 1800s. In fact, one of the cases that we discussed earlier in this semester, and as I mentioned at the time, probably the most famous case in contract law, the case of Carlisle versus Carbolic Smokeball, does in fact include some discussion of this idea that there must be an intention to create legal relations in order for there to be a binding legal contract. And indeed, in one way, you could see this intention as being something that is implied as part of the offer rule. So when I originally formulated the offer rule, I formulated it pretty much in the following way, which is that in order for there to be a binding legal contract, there must be an offer where an offer is understood as a clear statement or representation by one party showing a willingness to be legally bound by specific contractual terms. And acceptance, then, is just the mirror image of that. It is the willingness to accept an offer to be bound on specific terms. So you could argue that the willingness to be bound on specific terms is in fact an intention to create legal relations, and so this whole doctrine of contract law, the intention to create legal relations, is already part and parcel of the traditional rules and offer and acceptance. And you see this in Carlisle versus Carbolic Smoke Bowl. So if you recall, the argument of the Carbolic Smoke Bowl company in that case is that their ad, with the reward for 100 euro if somebody catches influenza by using their product correctly, is just a mere advertising puffery. It's just hyperbolic, slightly sensationalized claim designed to sell a product. They never really intended to pay the 100 pound rewards to anybody. They never intended for the ad to create a binding legal contract. And as you should recall, that argument was rejected in the case by Lord Justice Bowen. And what did he say when rejecting it? He said the following. Was it intended that the £100 should be paid if the conditions were fulfilled? Well, the advertisement says that £1,000 is lodged at the bank for the purpose. Therefore, it cannot be said that the statement was intended to be a mere puff. It was intended to be understood by the public as an offer which was to be acted upon. So that last bit saying it's intended to be an offer is, in essence, just saying that it was intended to create potentially legally binding contracts. So look, if that's right, if the idea of an intention to create legal relations is implicit in the existing rules on offer and acceptance, you may wonder, why are we talking about it again? Why are we deeming it to be an independent condition within the basic rule of contract law? And the reason for this emanates from a famous decision in the early part of the 20th century called Balfour v. Balfour, an English case, which set up an independent doctrine of intention to create legal relations, which effectively stipulates that there is a presumption against an intention to create legal relations in certain contexts and a presumption in favor of it in other other contexts. In other words, there are some kinds of agreement... Which occur in a context in which courts are less willing to assume the existence of a binding contract, and some that occur in contexts where they are quite willing to assume it. And so I actually included that idea in my formulation of the intention rule, where I said that there were presumptions for and against an intention to create legal relations. And I actually want to say a little bit about the significance of this, because it's an important idea, not just for contract law, but for all legal subjects, because presumptions crop up time and time again in law, and they have a particular legal function. And that function can be simply stated, which is that a presumption tells you something about where the burden of proof lies in the typical case. So let's just think about this abstractly for the moment. In any legal case in an adversarial system like we have here, you have two kinds of party to the case. You have a plaintiff and a defendant, or an applicant or a respondent. The jargon doesn't particularly matter here. And these parties have some kind of legal dispute arising from the potential application of a legal rule. So one of the parties, the plaintiff, is alleging that the conditions under a particular legal rule have been met, and the other party is alleging that they have not been met, usually. So at the heart of their dispute is something that in Latin is called the factum probandum, and these are the facts that need to be proved in order for a legal rule to apply. So if you think about a basic contract law case on the formation of contract, you need to prove that there was an offer and that this offer was accepted. So that's the factum probandum, the fact that needs to be proved. Now the ordinary rule is that the person who is bringing the case, the plaintiff, has the burden of proving the factum probandum. And the other party doesn't have to prove anything. They only have to prove something to dismiss or rebut the plaintiff's claims about the existence of the factum probandum. So in a sense, then, every legal trial starts with the presumption that the legal fact, the factum probandum, has not occurred. And then it's up to the other side to rebut that presumption. And you see this at work in The most famous presumption in law, and probably the area of law that many of you are most familiar with and that features in popular media most often, which is criminal law, which, as you'll know, every criminal trial starts with the so-called presumption of innocence. And what's the effect of the presumption of innocence? The effect of the presumption of innocence is that the defendant in a criminal trial doesn't have to prove anything. They are presumed to be innocent. It's up to the prosecution to prove that the defendant committed the crime. So it's up to them to prove that the factum probandum has occurred. For example, that they've killed somebody with the intent to kill. Now, certain things can happen in the course of the trial that shift or alter the burden of proof. So, for example, if the prosecution introduces facts in a criminal trial to show that the defendant did, in fact, kill somebody with the intent to kill, they may then have to rebut that presumption, or sometimes defendants accept that they committed an act that might ordinarily count as criminal, that they did kill somebody, for example, but they might allege that they acted in self-defense. So they introduce a defense to the charge. If they introduce a defense to the charge, they are then taking on the burden of proof. They have to prove that they acted in self-defense. So the burden of proof often shifts back and forth in the typical legal trial as a result of what evidence is introduced, what facts appear to have been established, and so forth. We don't have to get too involved or deep into this idea. The important point, and the one that I just want to emphasize here, is that a presumption in law, when we say that something is presumed or a fact is presumed, what we're usually saying then is something about where the burden of proof lies. So to tie this all back to contract law and the intention to create legal relations, if there is a presumption against legal relations or an intention to create legal relations in certain contexts, what that means is that the plaintiff in a contract case who's alleging that a legally binding contract exists and the terms of it should be enforced, will have to prove the existence of an intention to create legal relations in that context. The burden of proof lies upon them. Whereas if there is a presumption in favor of an intention to create legal relations in a certain context, they don't have to prove that. It's just presumed that the intention exists, and then it's up to the other side, the defence, defendant, to show that there was not an intention to create legal relations. So that's the importance of this idea, this doctrine of intention to create legal relations, which is that it tells us something about the burden of proof in a contract case for establishing that a contract was formed. All right, so that's all kind of a long introduction. Let's now talk about a famous case that establishes and introduces this independent doctrine of intention into contract law. And that case is a case called Balfour v. Balfour. So this is a 1919 English case involving a married couple, the Balfours. So this couple married in the year 1900, and they went to live in Ceylon. That's what it's referred to in the judgment as. Nowadays, it's known as Sri Lanka. They returned to England in 1915 uh, because the husband had some leave from his work. So he, I think he worked with the English or rather British Commonwealth or Imperial Service. So they returned to England in 1915. He then had to return back to Sri Lanka for work. Mrs. Balfour was, however, advised by her doctor to stay in England due to her condition. She had severe arthritis. Upon leaving... The husband promised to pay her £30 per month until she was able to come back to Sri Lanka. Now, what happened is that they drifted apart, and the marriage effectively broke down. He wrote to her from Sri Lanka, telling her that she shouldn't return. She commenced divorce proceedings in 1918, so three years after he went back to Sri Lanka... And she also, at the same time that she instituted divorce proceedings, she sued to enforce the promise to pay the £30 per month. So when this case initially came to trial, it was found that a legally binding contract had come into existence between the husband and wife and that he was bound to pay her £30 per month. But upon appeal, the Court of Appeal held that this was the incorrect conclusion or judgment. And Lord Justice Atkin gave what is the most important judgment in the case. You might be familiar with Lord Justice Atkin, by the way, from tort law. He's responsible for the judgment in probably the most famous case in tort law, namely Donahue v. Stevenson. And it's in the course of this judgment from Atkin that he introduces this doctrine or concept of intention to create legal relations. So let me just quote from his judgment. He says, there are agreements between the parties which do not result in contracts within the meaning of that term in our law. The ordinary example is where two parties agree to take a walk together or where there is an offer and an acceptance of hospitality. So what he's talking about in that case is you know, me offering to make dinner for you or something like that, and you accept that offer. That's not a legally binding contract. So to continue with the quotation, he goes on to say that Nobody would suggest in ordinary circumstances that those agreements result in what we know as a contract. One of the most usual forms of agreement which does not constitute a contract appears to me to be the arrangements which are made between husband and wife. It is quite common, and it is the natural and inevitable result of the relationship between a husband and wife, that the two spouses should make arrangements between themselves. To my mind, Those arrangements, or many of them at least, do not result in contracts at all. They are not contracts because the parties did not intend that they should be attended by any legal consequences. To my mind, it would be of the worst possible example to hold that agreements such as this resulted in legal obligations which could be enforced in the courts. Now look, I'm going to make a few comments about this judgment, but let's not lose sight of the key conclusion here, which is that in this case and more generally in agreements between husband and wife at least, and we'll look at some other context where this applies later on, there is a presumption against an intention to create legal relations. Now, what's interesting about the judgment is that, as you can see in the passages that I just quoted, Lord Justice Atkin is making claims about what the intentions of the parties were. So he's saying that this can't be a contract because the parties did not intend that it resulted in legal consequences, But, of course, it's not obvious that that's true, right? I mean, Mrs. Balfour seems to have thought it had legal consequences. She brought a case to sue on foot of it. So her intention's not being respected in this case, or it seems like it isn't. And I don't think that there was any serious investigation to find out what the husband's intention was. So where is this alleged intention not to create legal relations coming from that Atkin points to? Well... This could be our old friend, the objective approach to interpretation coming into play, namely that they're saying, okay, even if the parties themselves didn't intend it or don't think that they intended it, their words and deeds were such that we infer that they didn't intend it. But it's not clear from their words and deeds in this case that they didn't intend it. It really seems to be that the judgment here is just a policy one, which is that there are certain kinds of relationships that shouldn't attract a presumption of an intention to create legal relations. So what is the policy rationale that underlies this idea? Well, actually, Lord Atkin, in his judgment, goes into some of the potential policy rationale underlying this presumption against legal relations in the context of marital agreements. And I'm going to quote again from his judgment. He says, It would be of the worst possible example to hold that agreements such as this, such as the one in this particular case, resulted in legal obligations which could be enforced. The small courts of this country would have to be multiplied one hundredfold if these arrangements were held to result in legal obligations. The common law does not regulate the form of agreements between spouses. The consideration that really obtains for them is that of natural love and affection, which counts for little in these cold courts. The parties themselves are the advocates, judges, courts, sheriffs, officer, and reporter. So there's quite a lot going on in just that short passage from the judgment, but it suggests a few different rationales for presuming that there's no intention to create legal relations in the context of marital agreements. One rationale is what I may call a a floodgates rationale, which is that if there was a presumption to create legal relations in these kinds of scenarios, we would have a lot more cases coming before the courts of the land. The small courts of the land would be inundated with applications, and the courts would be overburdened with litigation and just wouldn't be able to cope with this. So that's one policy concern here as to why we shouldn't presume an intention to create legal relations. And that's a kind of general concern about being over-inclusive or overly generous in presuming an intent to create legal relations applies to many different kinds of scenario. There's also then, I think, a specific policy rationale connected to marriage, which is that somehow presuming that there was an intent to create legal relations in the context of a marital agreement would somehow taint or corrupt or undermine the marital relationship. So that bit of the judgment where he talks about the consideration that obtains from marital agreements is that of natural love and affection, not money, not cash, not the kinds of consideration that count in law, that seems to suggest there that it's just a general idea that marital agreements shouldn't really be tainted or corrupted by commercial considerations which apply to contract law. We might corrode or undermine or break down the natural bonds of love and affection if we presumed an intent to create legal relations in this context. Now, I think you could criticize that, rationale, and I suspect modern, maybe more kind of feminist-leaning interpretations of this case might take that criticism. They'd say that, well, this is a presumption against or that works against the interests of women who enter into kinds of arrangements with their husbands, such as, you know, giving up work or something like that to work in the family home. They don't get or acquire legal rights on foot of that, and so when relationships break down, they're kind of left high and dry if we don't have this presumption of an intent to create legal relations. And as you'll see when you study other subjects like family law and property law, there's been a pushback against that idea that there aren't legal consequences arising from the agreements that are reached in a marital relationship. So I think that second rationale for the doctrine could be questioned. And the third rationale that you can find in that judgment, that passage, which is a little bit more subtle, but I think is there, is that there might be certain zones of privacy that the law should not interfere with. The marital relationship is one, but maybe there are other contexts where there is a zone of privacy where the parties themselves are, to quote from Atkins' judgment again, the advocates, judges, courts, sheriffs, officer, and reporter. So maybe the agreements between friends, between siblings, and so forth, are similarly located in this zone of privacy, that shouldn't be affected by the ordinary rules of contract law. All right, so that's kind of an analysis of the policy rationale underlying the judgment. None of this really matters in particular right now, because no matter which way you slice or dice it, the judgment in Balfour v. Balfour is usually taken as authority for this idea that there is, in the context of some relationships, a presumption against an intention to create legal relations, and so a presumption against contractual rights and there are in other relationships a presumption in favor of it. Now, just one other point about this judgment, and something that might have occurred to some of you while listening or hearing the facts of the case. When the husband and wife entered into this promise that he would pay her £30 a month, some of you might have been wondering, well, what was the consideration that she offered for this promise? Because if there is a legally binding contract, doesn't she have to offer some kind of consideration? So what benefit or detriment was occurred or accrued to her. And actually, this is something that doesn't seem obvious from the judgment. And one of the judges in the Court of Appeal, Lord Justice Duke, argued that there may not have been any consideration provided by the wife in this case, and so there couldn't be a legally binding contract. Now, that said, there was an argument made on the part of the wife that she did offer some consideration, which is that if if the husband paid her £30 a month, she gave up any right to pledge her husband's credit when purchasing goods or services. So again, we've seen this in a couple of other cases. She couldn't rely on his name, basically, when trying to purchase something on credit. Now, that said, Lord Justice Duke wasn't convinced of that as being a valid or sufficient consideration in the case. And we saw as well that Lord Justice Denning wasn't convinced of that in another case that we looked at. But like that's all, in a sense, by the bye because... The key point in the case is that Lord Justice Atkin and the majority of the judges found that there isn't an intent to create legal relations in the context of a marriage or in the context of this particular marital agreement, and so there couldn't have been a binding contract anyway, even if there was sufficient consideration. Okay, so I'm going to actually leave it there. That's a little bit short for this lecture, I know, in comparison to the previous ones, but this is a natural breaking point, because what I want to do in the next lecture is to discuss The different kinds of relationships that can exist and the different presumptions that attach to them. And we'll go through a bunch of cases on those. Okay.